You're listening to the No Regrets Podcast with Kate. I am your host, Kate Hutchinson, author, healer, soul searcher. No Regrets is about healing. Healing the limiting beliefs that are holding you back from living the life you dream of. On this podcast, everyday people of all ages share their journey through this thing called life. Let their stories inspire you to never wonder what if and live with no regrets. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Sullivan and today I wanted to speak with her because I'm in awe of her. In honor of and in recognition of uh, February being Heart Month, I wanted to speak to Rachel today because not only was she born with a congenital heart disease, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS for short, she just recently underwent a heart and liver transplant. And I've been watching her Facebook status updates for the last few months. And seriously, I told her I'm in awe and I want to talk to you because she's probably the fastest recovering patient of a heart and liver transplant, probably maybe one of the youngest. I don't know. We can talk about that. But She is 33 years old, and she wanted to make it till she was 33 without having a heart and liver transplant, and she was two weeks shy. But I wanted to talk to her today. So, Rachel, welcome to the No Regrets Podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Welcome. Good morning. 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 So, welcome. Um, How are you today? Um, I'm good. I'm really good. um, I'm having a little bit of side effects from the anti-rejection medication, which kind of drive me a little nuts, but, but I'm good. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about what is anti-rejection. Why did you have to have a heart and liver transplant? And is it a transplant normal for someone with your born with your condition? So I was born, um, in 1986 when hypoplastic left heart syndrome was just getting to the survival period. So I was probably one of the oldest people with hypoplastic left heart. A lot of my care was often a, well, we'll see if this works or like, we'll find out when you find out, which was kind of, you know, it's, it's maddening, but I'm, I'm glad they learned, uh, through my case. Anyway, um, in early, April, I started getting um, ascites and it was around Mother's Day. And I think when the fourth person, people kept asking me if I was pregnant. And when the fourth person asked me if I was pregnant, I was like, oh, something may be up. What did you call it? I'm sorry, ascites? What is that? Ascites. So it's when um, fluid builds up in your belly and you kind of look, you look pregnant. Yeah. Okay. So I went to go see my doctor and I'm, of course, trying to talk her out of the, like, the idea that this could be a cardio thing. I was like, no, indigestion or, you know, something going on there. And she's like, no, this is cardio. So I went to go see my cardiologist. And what they found or what they could see was my heart looked okay, my liver looked okay. But for whatever reason, the blood vessels in between were leaking fluid into my belly. And what they do for that is called a paracentesis or a tap uh, where they drain the blood out of you. And I was having to go probably every two to three weeks to get fluid drained. 
And that's not a long-term solution. Um, So then we talked about it and decided, yeah, it's, it's time for a heart and liver transplant. So HLHS is you basically have the short version is you have half a heart. Yes. So yeah. your left ventricle is just tissue. It does nothing. Yeah. Um, your right, your left atrium, sorry, is useful, but small. Mm-hmm. And then you have a narrow aorta and then you're missing a couple heart valves is what you said. Like, no big deal. Yeah. So, so minor. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. minor. Basically... When you, like you said, when you were born, I'm just trying to understand, when you were born, the mortality rate was like you basically didn't survive. So you're one of the first surviving patients with this congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. So you made it to 33 on a hope and a prayer almost. Yep. Yep. So since you were like their trial run or their test baby, they didn't know what the future held for you. Right. So this fluid buildup they learned from that, right? This is what happens or what could potentially happen when a patient gets older. Yeah. And then, so if it was the arteries or the blood vessels leaking, then how does replacing the heart and the liver help that? So the thought was, and they, they officially titled it Fontan failure because the, the fix for hypoplastic left heart syndrome is, Step one is the Norwood procedure, and step two and three is called the Fontan. And essentially what they do is they kind of disconnect and reconnect everything. So your blood flows into the inferior and and superior vena cava, but then goes directly into the pulmonary artery and then comes back through the pulmonary vein. Um, And the right side of my heart acted as the left where the blood would come into the atrium, go into the ventricle, and the right ventricle would pump the blood to the aorta, um, which had to be rebuilt and then got sent out my body. Well, with that, it's kind of like if you take a major highway, like the 405, right? And you cut it down to two lanes, but you keep the same amount of traffic. There's going to be so much more stress on the structure of it. So when I only had the, the two chambers, there was so much stress on the blood vessels. And after 32, you know, and, and almost 33 years, that takes a toll on your organs, especially the liver, which my understanding is there's a direct connection um, from the aorta to the liver. And so my liver um, eventually became cirrhotic or what they call, or I had cardiac cirrhosis. So that, so the liver wasn't processing the blood as fast as it should be. The heart was causing this congestion and the liver was diseased. And so I think just the, the blood just kind of pooling in the vessels and the, your vessels can only hold so much um, before they start leaking. And that's exactly what happened. So if you put in a new heart and a new liver, then there is you've alleviated the stress on the blood vessels. Sure. So you were approved pretty quickly for this transplant and you found a donor very quickly. Like how did that work out? So it it was, this whole thing has kind of been a little bizarre. Would you say bizarre or a miracle? uh, A miracle. Okay. Yes. (laughs) It's just like, man, if you don't believe in everything happening for a reason, Uh, you know, sit down with me in this story and you might change your mind. So like 
there, there are three hospitals that do the heart and liver transplant specifically for Fontan patients. Three, almost four years ago, my husband and I just happened to move 20 minutes away from one of those hospitals. Um, and we didn't choose to move to LA for that reason. Um, we, you know, we never thought, oh, I'll need a heart transplant soon. It was just, oh, UCLA is a good hospital. They have a good adult congenital um, system. LA is a big city. So that was purely by happenstance. Well, but why did you move to LA and where were you moving from? Oh, so we're from Cleveland. Okay. I got a, a job out here and my husband owns a marketing firm, Zig Marketing, and he uh, opened their office in LA. Okay. So we moved out here, fast forward a few years, found out I had to have a transplant, went through the evaluation, which probably was July, August, September, a few months, a few months. Um, and what was interesting about that is at the time it seemed to take forever and then it was done. I was like, oh my God, that was way too fast. So I was in the hospital for about five days and then I was listed. Just They had to go over the plan and take a look at all of the transplant parameters. I was listed and then it was like eight days later, the doctors came in and said, hey, we found your heart and liver. And what was kind of crazy about that is I was going to wait until, until the new year to go in. I, I still wanted to work. I wanted to live my normal life. But then this voice just kept telling me, get in there and get listed before Halloween. And I like, I just couldn't ignore this. And so I was like, okay, fine, I'll do this. And it was just so crazy that it happened that way. So I went uh, under on November 6th and it was a two part surgery. Um, November 6th, around 1 PM, I went in and I got out November 7th around 4 AM might have gone in at noon. It was it was whatever 14 hours is. Just for the <laughs> heart part, not just. Yeah, but just yeah, for the heart. For the big part. And then they let my body rest for 24 hours. Uh, and then I went back for the second part. And in the first part, they put the heart in. They put the liver in. They hook up most of the liver except for the bile system. And because being under for 14 hours is such a, like, such a huge thing for your body. It is, yep. Yeah. Um, they let you rest. And so I, I, they woke me up to do a neuro check. And I kind of remember that. Uh, and then they sedated me again, did the four hour surgery, finishing hooking up the bile system. And, and then I woke up and I was in the hospital, uh, post-op for about 10 days. My, my birthday is November 20th and I was hell bent and determined I'm getting out before my birthday. I will not celebrate a birthday in the hospital. Yeah. So I, I woke up and I was like, all right, what boxes do we have to check to get me out of here? Yeah. And were yeah. you out by your birthday? Got out November 19th, wow. the day before. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I go to UCLA as well for my treatment and that team is fantastic and I was in the hospital over the summer, and I was obviously on the cardiac floor. So just for our listeners, you're more apt to get a transplant quicker if you're, like, in the hospital versus waiting outside of the hospital. Is that true? So that's why you yes. wanted to yeah. be admitted because 
if you're in the hospital, yeah. then you are like first priority. Right. I, they wanted to admit me because when you're, when I was in the hospital, they put me on specialized medication to ensure I didn't go into heart failure. When someone with a single ventricle goes into heart failure, it happens really fast. And it is very hard to get someone back from that point versus someone who has a whole heart and goes into heart failure. And so that really bumps you up on the list. Okay. Because you, I, you may not, you may not look serious, but time is imminent until sure. you get to that serious point. Sure. So this may be a kind of a morbid question, but do you feel differently? Like, obviously, physically, you feel differently, but energetically, do you, do you feel differently? Like you, you have somebody else's organs. Like, do you? I mean, I don't know what you feel about like energy or people's aura, but do you feel anything like that? Like in the movies, you know? <laughs> um, not yet. And it, it's really interesting. I wasn't, I wasn't ready to reach out to the donor family because I, I recognized that I needed time for this heart to just be mine and the heart and liver to just be mine. And so I've been keeping this very intentional focus of this is my heart. This is my liver. And I think that's a really important attitude to have, especially when you're in a stage where rejection is is possible and scary. Eventually, uh, I want to reach out to the donor's family and learn more about this person and, and really let in that thought of I have someone else's heart and I have someone else's liver and that was a person and this person had a life and and a purpose. Right now, though, I'm not ready to do that yet. Right now, this just has to be mine. Sure, sure. Yeah. And what kind of anti-rejection medication, what, what does that do? I mean... So the anti-rejection medication, and I'm on tacrolimus, prednisone, and Celsept, uh, it basically um, suppresses your immune system. It, you still have a bit of an immune system, just it, it doesn't do much of anything. Um, and it prevents your body from seeing the heart and the liver uh, as something foreign that shouldn't be there. And it, it prevents your body from fighting those organs to the point where you, you can't have them anymore. Uh, the side effects are a pain in the butt. Um, but they do get better with time. Yeah. Well, that's good. And how long do they anticipate you being on those meds? So, uh, they're, I think I'll be off the prednisone in July or August. They slowly taper you off. And then, um, the Celsept and the tacrolimus, I'll, I'll be on for the rest of my life, mm. which I'm okay with. I was already on medicine before. So you're just on different medication now. Yeah, exactly. And it's it will actually turn out to be less medication than I was on before. Oh, yeah. well, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. It is February 2nd that we're talking. So it's a beautiful Sunday morning. You got out of the hospital on November 20th. When did I see you going hiking? Was that January? Um, I think. Hold on. Let me. Let me. I think it was in January. Yeah. Because this girl yeah, was supposed to be on ice. Yeah. 
<laughs> you were supposed to be on isolation, and then all of a sudden she's out walking. I mean, I don't think she's like hiking a mountain, but she was outside. Yeah. Amazing, just amazing. So, Ooh, over yeah. in general, you're feeling good. Yeah, yeah, I do feel good. Um, I think it about at the eight week mark where I felt like my body kind of turned a corner and I started to feel more like myself. And I, I know my my case is, is pretty rare. One of the doctors, when I was in the hospital and I was just pushing myself, said, told his residents, um, you really want to see this because you'll never see it again. Wow. Uh, what yeah. doctor was that, may I ask? That was uh, Dr. Daniel Cruz oh. at UCLA. He's on the transplant team. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So let's like let's back up before all of this because I want to ask you some basic questions. Now, I know Rachel from the Adult Congenital Heart Association events. We met through there. She was born with a congenital heart disease. But what was it like growing up with this disease? And did you ever, you know, did life turn out the way you thought it would? Or did you... Did you live every year like it was your last? Did you live every day? Like, was there this huge unknown? Like, what was your growing up like? And how did you, what was your perspective of life? So growing up was was really interesting. I would say there was a bit of normalcy, you know, in, in just being a kid and a teenager and a young adult where you know, you go out with your friends, you hang out, you have that teenage angst, you go to college, you know, and have a fun time and go out in the workforce. So like there, there was normalcy in that. But there was also kind of an, a little additive of, you know, once in a while, you check in with the cardiologist and once in a while, you, something goes a different direction. And, you know, you have to do the medicine thing. And I always joke that, um, medicine is my involuntary hobby. Um, and it's just going to be a part of my life forever. What was very interesting though. Um, so I'm from Cleveland and I had my same cardiologist for 30 years and my mom is a nurse and they, they were very intentional in how they handled and how they taught me about my heart condition. I was very much encouraged to live with it and not live in it. And I would ask for years, I asked, is, am I going to need a heart transplant? Am I going to need a heart transplant? And all the time they said, don't worry about it. You may not need one. Don't worry about it. Now, in all fairness to them, they didn't know if I would need one. But I think what was really uh, vital and really important um, that they did, and probably the greatest tool my mother and my cardiologist gave me was don't focus on it too much, like live your life, do what you want to do. And my parents also, you know, I, if I could have, I probably would have played sports. I ran track in high school. I was terrible, but I did it. Um, and it was really heartbreaking when I was bad and when I couldn't do these things. And so my parents said, okay, well, you, you can't do sports. You're not great at track. And there's nothing you can do about that. So let's focus on something else. Let's get you to do something that you can do and and run with it, which I think really, really helped. As far as life turning out the way I thought it would, no, no, not at all. <laughs> and I mean, it's, so it's kind of hard because life is unpredictable to begin with. 
But also, when you have a congenital heart defect, or, I mean, you live with any disease anyway from childhood, like, you learn that things are so unpredictable. And it's kind of this, like, well, can I plan for the future? Or should I just, you know, worry about now? Or So it's kind of this weird cognitive dissonance where you're like, okay, um, I would love to plan my life 25 years from now, but I don't know if I have 25 years from now. It wasn't until my heart transplant that I was talking with my doctors about the next 30 or 40 years of my life. I thought, wow, we are having a conversation about the next 30 or 40 years of my life, and it isn't theoretical. Like, it's we actually know this is going to happen. And it kind of blew my mind because up until that conversation for 33 years of my life, the whole growing old thing was just, well, in theory, if this happens. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it almost. Exactly. If we get to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a few episodes ago, I interviewed Emily Earhart, which you know. And, you know, it was interesting because she really, she said, I just lived each year like it was my last she went from year to year and that's when I came to realize and what I started thinking about when you were talking is that I think for me you know I've been accused of wandering and not having a plan and I maybe that subconsciously subconsciously I thought well I don't know what's going to happen with my life. So I'm going to do what's in my heart today and not wait till 30 years when I'm retired or whatnot. And so it really got me thinking that maybe that's why I've lived my life the way I have wandering or maybe just being like, I want to go to Alaska. So I'm going to go to Alaska. Moving to Hawaii sounds good. So let's do that, you know, and not too much focused on my career in a sense that most people would be like, having focused on their career as their end game and right right. and really even and you know the Kobe thing Kobe Bryant you know so just shook the country and really we just don't know when our time is up we don't know when it's our time and so thinking you're gonna live after you know once you retire or you work for 10 more years or whatever you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what this podcast is about. And that's what my passion is. It's like, if you want to do something, do it now. Yep. Yep. You know, and I was like you, when I had my fifth open heart surgery in 2014, my pulmonary valve replacement, my surgeon up at uh, University of Washington Medical Center was like, well, if this doesn't work, then we'll put you on meds, you know, uh, in, in hospital meds. And if that doesn't work, heart transplant. I was like, that is not in my future. Like, that is not yeah. in the cards for me. You can just yeah. forget about it. But as long as we're all on the same page that I'm going to live another 40 years, then <laughs> we're good, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, crossing my fingers so far so good right now. Um, And I felt wonderful afterwards. And yeah. so you just don't know. And like you said, your case is I have tetralogy of flow is. It's similar. Well. Well, I have a full heart and oh, okay. yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, I, my aorta was in the wrong place. They moved that at a hole, but they patched all that up. And in the seventies, I'm a lot older than you. They thought, oh, you're fixed, you know? Yeah. So I wasn't seeing the right doctors. I, you know, I, you know, I was just going to a plain cardiologist every year 
they know nothing, no offense, but they're not educated in congenital heart diseases. Right. So I was thinking I was fixed. I, you know, had heart palpitations and shortness of breath. I couldn't play sports either, no matter how much I wanted to try. And then one day I just, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't lie flat. You know, my heart was overcompensating for so long. I developed congestive heart failure and mm. I was in the middle of Alaska for six weeks living that way. I had chronic edema. Yeah. And, and at that time, it was such an emotional roller coaster for me. Yes. As you can imagine, you think you're fine, quote unquote, yeah. air quotes. And then one day your life, you're not fine. Your life is turned upside down. I was an emotional wreck. Yes. So, and I, I think what people don't realize is when you have a congenital heart defect, something going wrong doesn't always present as a progressive thing. Like it's a all of a sudden thing. Or if it is a progression, so like you had edema. I had a I had ascites. Is it edema? Is it ascites or is it just weight gain? So where so it doesn't it you can attribute it to other things. Um, so it's not, and, and that, that kind of adds to like, this is really unpredictable because you don't know when it's your heart or you don't know when it's just, you're a normal person and you go through normal things. And so a lot of it becomes, oh my gosh, all of a sudden we're on a new track. Right. And yeah. I'm shaking my head. Yes. Because I made every excuse like you did. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm God, you know, I'm fat and out of shape. Oh, I can't mm-hmm. breathe. What, you know, I mean, I was only at in Alaska, I was only at 2000 uh, feet, which isn't anything. I've lived in 2000 feet, but just walking around like, God, I am just fat and out of shape. And then yep. one night I couldn't sleep and it was just downhill from there. And I just thought, I'll just feel better. I just need to get home. I'll feel better. I'll feel better. I'm just not feeling good. And everybody's kind of looking at me like, I don't know, you should go to the doctor, but being in the middle of Alaska would have been, I couldn't go to the local first aid station. They would be like choppering me out to somebody else. And so I just, I don't know how I pushed through it. I don't know how I lived, honestly. I just, so like you, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think you're, you're right on track going, this is my heart. This is my liver. This is going to belong to me. And then once I feel like it's integrated, I can thank the person who gave me this life. Yeah. Yeah. So. And the, the other thing I wanted to say it about living for each day is, I mean, not, not only does your life take different courses all of a sudden, But I think also people who live with a congenital heart defect or live with diseases, we've we've kind of seen the fragility of life. And so we know the importance of living a fulfilled life. And not only that, but when you live with disease or you live with a congenital heart defect, you also have to confront a lot of big things um, really quickly. And I think for us, it, it makes us comfortable with confronting big things and things don't look as big or as scary. So I want to move to Alaska. That doesn't, that's not as scary as it may be to someone who hasn't had to face all of these huge things their entire life. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And 
I know I, I see a challenge and I know you see a challenge and where someone else might be like, oh my God, that's completely intimidating. We're like, eh, just another Tuesday. You know, this is no problem. We'll figure it out. Cause that's, that's also how we've had to live our lives. Like, okay, this is an issue, but we'll push through. Like you said, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And that's yeah. not to say I don't get scared about things. I get very, oh, you know, course. I have lots of fear about the, you know, innocuous yeah, things that don't warrant it, but you know, yeah. um, I you think know, we're trained really, really well in confronting issues and, and being able to do big things. I yeah. think at the once you're through something, that's easy to say. But even when you're going through it, I mean, I know yeah. for me, I was terrified. I was yeah. crying and I'm the worst patient. I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I'm sure with you too, yeah. all that trauma rears its ugly head. Yes. And and you're yeah. like, I don't want, you know, I'll do whatever you tell me to, but I'm going to bitch the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. I, through the transplant, I kept having to remind myself, I, you know, you'll get through this. You've gotten through other things before. You'll get through this. You'll get through this. You'll get through this. And I had to tell myself multiple times a day. I just had to remind myself that this awful process wasn't a permanent thing. And then I would get through it. And I remember after the surgery, it was, so I couldn't eat for like five days after because the liver was involved and they want to make sure your, your liver is okay before it starts processing foods. And I felt so weak and so terrible and I was crying my eyes out. And I looked at my mom and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And she, you know, I could see she felt terrible and said, I know, honey, I know, I know. And it, I mean, it was awful. And I, I just kept having to tell myself, like, you will get through this. You will get through this. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know that feeling of just wanting to give up. And I think also, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying I, I'm, I'm done. And I think. Also, the reason I, I pushed myself and pushed myself really, really hard with, with the transplant and getting out as soon as I could and getting back to hiking and normal life is I thought, you know, this is going to be terrible um, no matter what I do, uh, whether I, I take it easy and let this extend out a few months or whether I, I push myself, you know, and, and hope that the, this gets better sooner. So I might as well push myself harder and try um, and hopefully this, this terrible won't last as long as it could. Yeah, but there's got to be a balance too of rest oh, and trying. Yeah. But I think I you're, was, yeah, like still, still take care of your body. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, I think people are, are stronger than they give themselves credit for. So it was like, if, if the doctor said, okay, try to get up and walk today. Okay. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to get up and walk a few times. If I can't do it, that's okay. I can't do it, but I'm at least going to try it. Right. Yeah. And I think our mental desire really, really helps. Yeah, really oh drives gosh, it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I had it in my mind. I'm. I'm not going to die from this. This is not how I'm going to go. I have another forty <laughs> years, and I think the mental capacity or your mental state has a lot to do with that. And yes, but it's easy to, to give up. So it's yep. really, 
there have been times where I wanted to give up too, but deep down, I think there's a will to live. And I think that says a lot. Yeah. I, th- I think our bodies, like if we really, really wanted to let go, and I mean like let go and pass on, I think our soul is so strong in that sense that that, that would have been the in- outcome. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're driving this train for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I believe you said that, you know, your mind just told you, you have to be in the hospital by Halloween. You have to yeah. be there. And just, and it's interesting that you said something that I've always said that everything happens for a reason. So mm-hmm. when I went to Alaska, I just went for the summer just to be a seasonal employee, but I was working for the army out in Barstow and I got laid off mm-hmm. and I just was like, I had always wanted to go to Alaska at some point, but, but once I knew I was going to lose my job and I was like, I'm going to go to Alaska. I'm, I, I'm going to Alaska. I don't know how, when, or what. And everybody laughed at me like, yeah, right. You can't even handle the cold. And Mm-hmm. I was laid off and I applied for a seasonal job making eight bucks an hour and I went up there and that desire was so strong that I couldn't ignore it either. Like you just, right. you don't know why you need to go, but you have to go. And right. yeah. I think of my, you know, I went to Alaska and then since I wasn't working after that was over, I was going to go down to Seattle, visit my best friend and I had a one-way ticket. I didn't know how long I was going to stay. Obviously, I'd be work- looking for work during this time. And I told her how bad I was feeling. She said, please see a doctor when you get here. And I was unemployed. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was like, yeah, I'll go. And then I just got worse and worse. She's like, I'm going to take you to the emergency room. So flew to Seattle, got off the plane. She took me straight to the ER. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm like, I just want to feel better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had no idea what was happening. I yeah. looked up congestive heart failure on the internet. I'm like, that's not me. It's amazing. Right? <laughs> the denial. And then, yeah. you know, you get transferred to the right hospital. I have like the right doctor who just came from UW and said, I know the adult congenital team. This is the first time that I knew that there was an adult congenital team. Like, and just from there, everything just aligned perfectly. And so... Yeah. One of the things I want to say to everyone is if you get that gut feeling, don't ignore it, please, Mm -hmm. especially when it's so strong and it's like screaming at you, you know, you just don't ignore it. Yep. There's a reason for it. Yeah. So, yeah. So two questions I ask everybody, how would you define living with no regrets? I think I would say, you know, live or try to because we're human and we're flawed and it's we're, we're not always going to do things that we look back on and are proud of, but live a fulfilling life um, or, or try to live a fulfilling life. And don't waste your time with things that, that don't fulfill you. I mean, yeah, once in a while you have to. I'm not going to lie. My job doesn't always fulfill me. Sitting in, you know, around the house waiting for isolation time to be up does not fulfill me. But focus on what brings you happiness and what brings you joy and and do it. And even if it's something where, you know, you, you have to take time to get the logistics in order, like 
moving to another state or getting another job or uh, whatever it may be, just because you can't do it now does not mean you can't do it. And sometimes the process of, of I can't do it now to I'm going to work towards it is just as fulfilling as the end, uh, is the end goal. So I think living with no regrets would just live for your happiness and, and do not be ashamed of that and don't deprive yourself of that. So, um, when you say, you know, live a fulfilling life. So by fulfilling, you mean happiness and joy. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness, joy, something where if, if you were to die tomorrow, you could look back at your life and say, I'm proud of the majority of what I've done, or I, I feel good about my life. And again, you're not going to feel good about all of it because we're human. We're flawed. We're always trying to do better, but, and that's okay too. Um, but yeah, live for happiness and live for joy and try not to waste your time with, with things that don't give you that. And I know it sounds really, really cliche, mm-hmm. um, but there's, there's been a couple of times where I was, I was pretty convinced this was the end. Um, and what one time in particular, I thought back to just a group of people in college that I had given so much time and energy to. And I thought, Oh my gosh, that like, they were so insignificant. Like, what was I doing? And it's hard at times to pull yourself out of those situations that will later on be insignificant until you're at that point of I'm looking back at everything as, as maybe it's over or it could be. So you, you kind of almost have to take it from people who have been there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm shaking my head the whole way through. Yeah. Her, which yeah. <laughs> definitely been there. Catch myself currently doing that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you, and I absolutely do that too. I get wrapped up in things that like do not matter. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard sometimes to pull yourself out of it because there's such an attachment to it, which is strange. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But but, I mean, the best you could do is, is try. Right. Yeah. So do you have any regrets up until this point? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are a million things I would have done differently. Um, for the most part, Though, and this this could be because with the heart and the liver, I do I do know I was given a huge gift, um, not only by the donor but by the donor's family and by the hospitals and the doctors that worked with me, and and my family and my friends who supported me um, and helped me when I I didn't want to move or didn't want to walk or or didn't want to take medicine. It was a huge, huge gift. And so as of now, and it it could be because I'm, I'm still in awe of that. And hopefully that, that awe never goes away. I do, I do feel happy and I do feel that joy. Um, I'm sure you know, sometime from now, like that may go away because life happens and that happens and that's a normal thing. But as of now, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good. Yeah. Good. 
what does the future hold for you or what are your plans for the future as much as you can plan for it? Are there things that you now want to do given a new perspective or you just, what's the plan? You know, it's kind of interesting. Before the transplant, I had all of these plans. And even when I knew about the transplant, I had all of these plans. And then the transplant happened and I was like, you know, I don't know what I have planned. You know, um, so example, I wanted to, I wanted to take up running and the transplant happened. Um, and, and I started doing physical activities that I couldn't do when I had my first heart and I found out I didn't really like them. And I mean, it could be, it could be, I didn't like them because my body wasn't used to being pushed in that way. And so it was very, very weird to me. Or, you know, it could be that I just don't like them. <laughs> it's amazing. We want what we can't have, even if we don't maybe enjoy it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And so I, and I wanted to travel uh, to every continent. And right now I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to. Um, it, it's so fascinating. And I think right now I'm kind of in that I'm going to live more day to day moment. I know I want to get back to work and I, I want to get back to this. And this is kind of strange because you would think someone who's just gone through this would have these big, huge plans. But right now I just want to get back to my normal life, you know, sitting in traffic, going to work, um, being frustrated with my projects, you know, loving when they're done, enjoying my coworkers, visiting my friends. I think that is the the huge thing I want to do. Yeah. It's just find your new normal. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And about a week after you're sitting in traffic, you'll be over it. Yeah. I'll, I'll be like, why did I want to do right. this? <laughs> Living yeah. in LA, driving on the 405. Anybody yeah. who knows it. Oh, but yeah, no, I get it. That's exactly how I was. I'm like, I just want to get back to my normal life. I just want to, yeah. you know, be normal and not deal with this. And, um, but I love what you said earlier about what your family said, live with it and not in it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that live in it and I've always yeah. been with it. Like, yeah, I have this thing and I really try not to talk about it too much unless I feel like I have to make an excuse for why I'm slower or I can't keep up. Mm -hmm. You know, I use it as like, well, I'm not saying this to be sorry for me, but I have a really good reason. I'm not just out of shape, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I just don't, it's not who I am. I don't, yeah. that's not my identity. And yeah. yeah. But I, seriously, Rachel, thank you for sharing your story with me. And I just, I watch you from afar and I'm in awe. So thank you. Congratulations, <laughs> I guess. Thank you. <laughs> in order. thank you very much yeah I love your attitude you have such a good attitude and I think you're you're in the right mindset and things like that oh thank you so much Kathleen you're welcome and um I don't know can you have visitors I mean I know you've been outside but I know yeah that... I can have visitors okay because um when I uh interviewed Emily 
I said, I really want to go see Rachel. This is when you were in the hospital. She's like, I do too. I'm like, okay. And then you got out so quickly. Yes, <laughs> I was I like, okay, now she's in isolation. What do we do? So I haven't been in touch with Emily, but I know she would love to see you as well. So we'll have to plan to get together or something. Definitely. And admittedly, kind of while um, I was healing and even after I was out of the hospital, I, I didn't want to see people because I don't... I don't like people seeing me like that. You know, I mean, no, when you're healing or when I'm healing, at least I kind of become a little bit of a hermit. Yep. And it, it helps. Um, but yes, totally up for visitors. My 90 days is next or this coming Thursday. And that's a huge milestone in transplant. And that's where I don't have to wear a mask everywhere. And I can see more people and maybe travel within the United States. And yeah. Oh, my gosh. Be careful with the coronavirus. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I will. I, I will. I Like me and my husband wear masks anywhere and like everywhere we go. And I will absolutely continue doing that because of the coronavirus. Wow. Yeah, I was the same way. And I think the hermit thing and yeah you don't want people to see you like that because they don't you don't want to remind people that you're sick but also mm -hmm. too for me anyways like the first few days you you're like coming coming down from the medication yeah and really and that is really and I don't think a lot of people understand that because mm -hmm. after my surgery I was like I don't care if I don't see anybody ever again in my life like I had this yeah. like I don't want to see anybody I don't want any and I had to ask somebody, I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on with me? And it's like that mm -hmm. med, the meds you're coming down from. And I can yeah. only imagine what they gave you during the surgery, after the surgery, and then what you're continuing to be on. So that's yeah. totally understandable. And what was interesting, I went into the hospital October 24th. And I'm not kidding you, probably from 5 a.m. to like 7 p.m., there was a doctor, a nurse, an STNA uh, family or friends in my room every seven minutes. Like I timed it. And this was until November 19th. And then when I got home, it, I had my husband and another family member staying with me until mid-December. And I I can be introverted. So I'm, I want to be a hermit. I'm trying to heal. And I... I'm at this point where I haven't been alone in like two months and it kind of drove me a little batty. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can only imagine, especially when, you know, that rotation of just people coming in. Yeah. Like you said, every seven minute, like it is, mm -hmm. there's no peace and you can't sleep and then they're poking and prodding you and they can't get their schedules right. I had one. Yes. It was just, yeah. it's so frustrating. I totally get it. Cause sometimes you just, some people thrive on being around people and I'm just yeah. the total opposite where I need my alone space. Like go away. Right. I need to rejuvenate by myself. I No, I'm the same way. I'm the exact same way. And also I felt bad because people were messaging me and calling me and I wanted to get back to them. But every seven minutes I was, I was talking to a new person in front of me. It's cr like I had a busier schedule in the hospital than I did at work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's so and here, true. I, I'm an idiot. I was being positive, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a vacation. I don't have to work. I can just rest until the heart comes, and, you know, the heart's not going to be there for a while. They told me a few months. Nope. <laughs> you do not go to the hospital to sleep. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or rest. No. You don't. No. 
Yeah. You, you go to the hospital to learn how to live without sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When I, after my open heart surgery in 2014, you know, the doctors want you to walk three times a day. Yes. And I'm, it's awful. Yeah. But, and then it was like, they come in and they come get you for x-rays and then they come and take you for this. And one time the guy, the doctor got mad at me cause I wasn't, I go, I've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, no excuse. I go, no, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> like there's been no time. It's so true. Oh my yeah. gosh. That's but, hilarious. But then I did, I found out like if you try to do too much or you're like, Hey, okay, let's do this. Let's do that. Then they get all, they, they worry. Like you're, you're made of glass. And I'm like, wait a minute. You wanted me up out of my bed, marching around the joint, you know, like crazy. And then I try to do a little more and you're like, oh, no, 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 stay still. You know, <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. And the other thing I think that doctors don't keep in mind, because a lot of cardiologists, especially adult congenital cardiologists, have not had open heart surgery. And I, I don't think what a lot of them really keep at the front of their brain is we feel our bodies and, and we've spent our lives feeling our limits. And so we know what's going to work and we know what's not going to work. And so when we say no and they're saying yes, you almost want to say like, can I please just give you this feeling? <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. God bless them, honestly. But sometimes like even the nurses and some of the doctors, I think they think they're working on like a dummy, not a person. A person with feelings and, yes. you know, pain and they just want to get a job done. They don't take care and going easy. They'll have like three people working on you at once and I always have to tell them. I'm like, no, I can only do one at a time. I need yeah. to know exactly what you're doing. I can't, I'm not a dummy where you can just start ripping shit right. off and like right. doing all, I need to know what's going on. It's too much. And, and I think that like that is so important for patients is is taking a handle of your care and being in charge of your own care. Like you're the CEO of your own body and your medical team, yes, they know more than you do, but ultimately they are your team and you get the ultimate say of, yes, I can handle this or no, this is too much or I don't understand this, you've got to explain it to me. And I tell people, even if you don't understand the first explanation, ask again, like yep. until you understand it and you're comfortable with it, don't accept the explanations they've given you. Like be in charge of your care, ask the questions, bother them, take their time. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be your own advocate. You have mm -hmm. to be, I mean, I know, I know every medication they're giving me, why they're giving it to me, what it does. And at one point they were, you know, they took me off a bag of, you know, certain medication. And then like a couple of days later they, they brought the bag. I go, why I'm on this yeah. and I'm on this that does this. So now you're going to give me this that contradict the other two. Why are you doing it? And they're like, right. Oh, good point. Like they just doctor's orders and you've got, Especially mm -hmm. in these teaching hospitals, you've got yeah. one doctor in the morning, you've got your rounding doctor, you've got your cardiology team. In your case, you've got your transplant team. And mm -hmm. then in my case, over the summer, I had infectious disease team and I had all the, you know, you have all these different teams and they do, yeah. they try to keep on the same page, but sometimes they just go, oh, this is happening, give her this without... Without so, yeah. looking at what else. And they have a lot going on, so it's sure. understandable. So it's important for you to catch it and say, hold up here. Hold on. We got to think about the whole picture. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah. it's, yeah, definitely in any case, doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a heart patient, just be your own advocate for exactly. sure. Exactly. And the other big question, one of the most important questions I've been taught to ask doctors, especially if they want to do a procedure is, would this change the way you're treating me? Like, will the results of this test or this medication change the way you're treating me? And this is, this is especially in teaching hospitals, because if the answer is no, it's not going to change the way we treat you, well then why are we doing this? Why are we wasting our time? Why are we wasting our effort? I understand you need to learn, and so you're gonna try it, but if it's not gonna change anything, then no, we're not going to. Yeah. Um, an example, one. I had uh, a mysterious infection like in 2016 and they wanted to give me a spinal tap to roll out meningitis. And I was at that point, they had given me antibiotics and I was feeling fine. And I just thought to myself, this is not meningitis. Um, not that I've ever had it, but I like I was feeling totally fine. And I assumed if it was meningitis, I would not be feeling that way. And so I said, okay, well, if it's bacterial meningitis, what will you do? And they said, well, we'll give you these antibiotics. And I said, all right, but you've already given me that. So we're good there. If it's viral meningitis, what will you do? Well, we will just wait. Okay, well, we're just waiting now. So no, we're not doing a spinal tap. Like you've given me stuff in case it's bacterial we're waiting now to see if it's viral. So no, the spinal tap is totally unnecessary. Yeah. And and they even had, they had the resident ask me, um, the infectious disease resident, they had the cardiology resident ask me, and then they got an attending, like, and I think he was a department head from infectious disease to come talk to me. And every time I, I stood my ground and said, no, no, sorry, no. like. You could send the president in here and he could tell me, I order you to get this. And I would say, nope, sorry. Yeah. You... Oh, it was Obama then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah, I agree completely. They, if, if you say no, they can't treat you. They can't force you. Right. They can't right. do it. So I had one nurse. What was it? I don't know, I was bitching about something. And she goes, well, it's your life. Like, I'm like, who says that? Yeah, it's my life, but I'm not taking my life just yeah. willy-nilly either. Yeah, you yeah. have to be your own advocate because when this last time I was in the hospital, they kept doing these breathing tr treatments on me to make you, like, cough Ugh. up phlegm. Oh, because yeah. I had a bacterial infection. And... Oh my God, it's the worst thing because you have to suck in the, it's, you probably know the, the it. The air from the stupid little ball, which never goes as high as you want oh, it Oh yeah, to. no, this was, they actually like, it's almost like you're smoking a pipe. Like they hook what it up to the, like they, and they put like some kind of stuff in it and you have to like suck it in and it makes you cough. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, like it, the albuterol treatment? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly, yes. what, but yeah. And so, because they want to get phlegm up to see, like, if you, and I could not, I I think I coughed up, like, a tiny little ball of phlegm. Yeah. And I was, I mean, you're crying, like, and just not, like, just your mm -hmm. nose, everything's coming out of you. And then they tried to do it again, and I was like, no, I'm not doing it. Nothing is coming up. My lungs yeah. are clear. Stop doing this to me. <laughs> like, yeah. They finally yeah. stopped. Like, it's ridiculous. 
Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, again, I'm not trying to say that these people don't know what they're doing, but at the same time, you have to be your own advocate. Right. Because they know what they're doing. Yes. But they don't know when you've had enough, unless you tell them they don't feel what you feel. They don't live in your body. They don't, they're trained to treat you. They're not trained to treat you up until your limit. Um, and they're not trained to know what the limit is like for you as an individual. They know the limits of the human body, but that's where you have to say like, yes, I can do this or no, I can't, or I can do it, but in a little while. And you have to set your own physical, mental, and emotional boundaries. Absolutely. So important. Yeah. Well, any last uh, thoughts for our audience before we go? I let you go. Um, I think that the biggest thing I, I would tell people is, again, as we just talked about, be be your own advocate in any medicine, even if it's I'm seeing a doctor for an ear infection, know why, know the antibiotic, know what it does, how it works. Um, and I think also as, as far as pushing yourself and living for your happiness, people are so much stronger than they give themselves credit for. And so I, I would very much encourage, and some people, again, just have to take my word for it, you know, live for what makes you happy. And if, if that means you float around for a little bit, okay. And if that means you go on with a 10-year plan and you chip away at it bit by bit, okay. But make sure you are happy. I agree. Because as Ricky Gervais said, we're all going to die and there's no sequel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or you can cut that part out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for agreeing to do this. And I'm so glad you look fantastic. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the No Regrets podcast with Kate. Be sure to subscribe. You can find this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or your favorite listening app. Please be sure to subscribe and follow me on Instagram at No Regrets Podcast with Kate.